Okay, first of all, I would like to apologize for my voice. I was sick a couple of days ago, and my vocal cords have not gotten the message that I am no longer sick. So, thankfully, the lesson tonight, actually, most of it is, like, discussion-based, like, within groups. So, we're going to go through just a couple of slides um, together and then break up into groups for the vast majority of tonight. So, it actually worked out really well. Um, so, we are going to be in Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And now, normally, I would read it, but I will be at some point asking if somebody will volunteer to read for me tonight. <laughs> um, but I wanted to start off... Yeah, this is not really changing positions here. It's the same group up here. Um, I wanted to start off with verse 1. So verse 1 in chapter 2 starts off with the word therefore. And what this does in the Greek is it links it to what came before. And so we can take all of the things from chapter 1 as kind of a foundation for understanding what we're going to read in chapter 2. So I just have the list of things kind of briefly that we talked about over the last three weeks. So he's thanking God for them. He's praying for their love to grow, specifically in knowledge and in insight, the goal being to be blameless when Christ returns. And then his situation, Paul's situation, is used to spread the gospel regardless of human motive. So all of this serves as a foundation for what we're going to read, not just tonight, but for the rest of the letter, because it has this word, therefore, that links it. Okay, so that is kind of our foundation. Now, would somebody mind reading... Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, before we kind of break some things down. Sure, I got it. Thank you. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was from he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Thank you. So I am actually so excited for this lesson tonight because I've been talking for like weeks about how exegesis is information and then we interpret that inf information through theology, through the historical setting, and then through what, how the text actually structures it. And tonight we actually get to break down two verses and put it through one of these filters. So we actually get to see the process from start to finish. And I've been waiting for this and I'm super excited. So we're actually going to skip the first five verses and we're going to come back to that at the end because those are kind of their own unit and that's going to be a lot of where our discussion is and that's where our book focuses in the discussion so in our conversation we're just going to focus on verses six and seven because it's really dense um, theologically but also when it comes to actual like words that are in the text so we're focusing on this word form this word here form is in verse six and in verse seven and it's talking about the existence in the form of God and then in the form of a slave. 
And so we have, there's two problems that have been identified with this word form. The first problem is what did Paul mean by form? What does that mean? And then the second problem comes because there is no translation equivalent. There is no English word that means this Greek word. And so the word form is inherently, it is the best case that we can use, but it is still not getting the Greek across. And so we're going to break down this word and then see how it ties in with our theology. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. The word is morphe. That's the word that's translated as form. And if you go all the way back to Homer, this word is used to describe the way that somebody speaks. So it's the manner that they speak, not the words that they say. And the way that it's translated in Homer is often like the comeliness of words or the shapeliness of words. So somebody who is well-spoken, somebody who is able to craft words in a good way, this is the word that is used to describe that. And that as language uh, progresses through time, it changes. And so when we get to classical Greek, this word is used for shape or size of something, appearance, sometimes an outward form, or a kind or a sort. And so the definition is changing, but we still don't have a good English equivalent for especially theologically what's going on in this passage. When we get here, LXX, that's the abbreviation for the Greek Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek back in the second century BC. This, um, this manuscript, these use the word morphe um, as describing when somebody is standing before somebody. So their demeanor in standing before somebody. And so the way that it's translated as, as in good standing, because they are in the form, the morphe of good standing in front of somebody. So see, there's really no good English word unless we're going to put an entire clause in there to translate this word. When we get into the New Testament, this word is described is describing Christ after his resurrection. Okay, so when you take all of that and interpret it out, the basic meaning of this word is that which truly characterizes a given reality, which is incredibly wordy for translation. But that is the that is the nuts and bolts the best way to translate this word. And so when we're reading our text, who though he existed in what truly characterizes a given reality of God did not blah, 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 blah. So that's really what's going on here. So it's a lot more detailed than just the English word form. Now, the reason I break this down is because... I'll come back to that. I'm breaking it down because when we go to our theology, it impacts the way that we read the form of God and the form of slave and then Christ being described in those two forms. So the actual just structure here of the verse, it's actually set up in a comparison. So verse six, the form of God is in a comparison to the form of man. And this little clause here, though we existed in the form of God, we'll come back to that. But when you pull that out, because grammatically you can do that, who did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, and then it gives three ways that it emptied himself. And so when it breaks down, we can pull it out in pieces and look at each piece individually. And so, he, so Christ is emptying himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. And so what we have here is actually a grammatical juxtaposition between equality and emptiness, between the form, the morphe that Christ had before, and the morphe that he had when he was here. And so we're juxtaposing these things. And once we get through, then we'll see how that plays out from a theological standpoint. Does that make sense? 
Any, any questions? Okay. Okay, here we are at the theology. Okay. What this is describing is the hypostatic union, which is the unification between Christ as fully divine and Christ as fully human. And so this verse is used to describe it. And the reason that I'm breaking things down so much into this word is because if you don't look at the Greek, sometimes we can get a misinterpretation from a theological standpoint. And that happens a lot. This is highly debated, as far, not so much now, but when these were things were being worked out in the church, this was misinterpreted quite often. And so going back to what that word means helps us understand as best as we can, this unification between the fully divine and the fully human. So that's why we're breaking this down. And that's why we're focusing on this part of the verse. So when I was reading through, there are a couple of things to keep in mind when we're talking about the hypostatic union. Okay? One of the sources describes it as an addition of human attributes onto the attributes that he already had, okay? as opposed to a loss of divine attributes. So the human attributes serve as limiting, almost, a limiting factor on those, but it's self-limiting, right? He put himself in this, it's self-limiting, but that is a way to view this union, okay? There's really no perfect way to view it, but so scholars come through and they try and find different ways to discuss it, different aspects that we can pull from scripture, and this is one of them. So in taking this idea of human attributes being more the focus of what is added versus what is lost, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, what did he empty himself of? Like, what exactly? Okay? And then if we pull in other verses, so sp specifically from Colossians 2.9, which also describes this union, we have, for in him all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So we know that we're not losing the divine. That's how we know that. Um, but when we're taking on the morphe, the form of a slave, we can view this as kind of the circumstances within which this whole thing is happening. So by taking on that quality, that human quality that we have, because Romans tells us that we are all slaves to something, whether it's to Christ or whether it's to the world, by taking on the form of a slave, he is limiting that, and that is the circumstances within which that happens. Now again, not a lessening of a divine, but a limiting because of the form, the physical form of humanity. Okay, so the example that I have is human development. So limited cognition. When a baby is born, they have limited cognition abilities. And as they grow and as they age, they gain more and more ability. And so this would be an example of a limiting factor where Christ as a baby would grow and develop and then come into that. Again, not a perfect explanation, not a perfect metaphor, not perfect, but scholars doing the best that they can to describe something that is very kind of outside of our ability to kind of it's one of those things, one of those mysteries that we try our best, but don't quite get there. Any questions on this? Can I have one more? Okay. So the second one is this concept of humanity and deity. So for us, our understanding of what makes somebody human, the form of humanity, is tainted by sin. And so Christ was not tainted by sin. And so to our minds, how can a perfect divine God be joined with a sinful human. Well, he wasn't, right? He wasn't sinful. And so how we understand humanity here has to be different than it's not like he was joined in somebody like us who is tainted by sin. And so just in general, his humanity was one without sin. And so it makes it even more difficult to kind of, kind of get down to what this form is and what that looks like. But again, best analogies that I could sort through and find for explaining what's going on here with the form of God and the form of man. 
Does that make sense? Any questions, any thoughts? No? Okay. Now, this phrase here that we kind of pulled out and we're gonna we decide to come back to, so we're back to it. Though he existed in the form of God, okay? And then does not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. So when we talk about equality as something to be grasped, again, difficult to wrap our minds around given the fact that he is God. And so theologically speaking, he is equal because they are equal parts of the Trinity, okay? And so there are kind of two ways that this has been read. And I put the two that were the most, um, I don't like the word popular, but the most agreed upon in scholarship. So the first option is that being that he was already equal with God, he is relinquishing those aspects of his divinity while being human. So he is himself uh, allowing those things to happen. He is relinquishing parts of himself, okay? He is equal but subordinate, right? He places himself under that, places himself under the will of God the Father in this, in this sacrifice that he is going to make, okay? So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, if it is read as though he is not equal, okay, then it would be on earth. He was not willing to separate himself from God. So again, it is a choice that he made to place himself in that. On the podcast, you can't see, I'm putting it in air quotes, the lack of equality, Okay, And then second, it would be his existence as a divine human stopped him from presenting himself as fully divine. This is, again, that self-limiting because of the physical human form. So when we're talking about all this, again, we're going back to that word morphe, trying to understand what Paul is doing, why Paul chose this word to describe the unification between the divine and the human. So when we dig into that word and then we view it through the lens of all of you know, the church history of how do we interpret these things, it can help they inform each other. So that is kind of how you take from exegesis from a word or a concept, kind of filter it through that interpretation, that theological interpretation, and then come to the other side with a discussion, which, oh good, I timed it right, with a discussion, okay. The first one. The first one. I lean to the first one. I think with the second option, that he is not equal, this would be people who are trying to um, qualify the text with what we know theologically. But I do think that the first option can stand by itself. I think that the first option, um, theologically consistent, grammatically it's consistent. And I don't think we even need the second option because the first option encompasses all of it. Trinity is all equal. Yes. In the same. So it yes. would be counter to that. Yes. You would put yourself down a rabbit hole with other things if you were yes. to think of two. Yes. And that is the problem. And that is why some, that's why one of my friends asked me, why in the world are you doing a class on exegesis? That sounds boring. Um, and, and maybe it is. I think it's interesting. Um, but this is why breaking down some of these words can help because while on the surface, you know, Option 2.1 here, that on earth, he was not willing to supersede God's will. Okay, but when you go down the rabbit hole of next conclusions and secondary and tertiary conclusions from saying, even saying the phrase, God is not equal, then you run into theological problems. Mm -hmm. And so that is, that's why some of this kind of detailed stuff is actually really important and can help illuminate the text further. Because if you start with a basis of a good understanding of the words and what they're saying, and then view it through that theology, then you, know, you have a better chance of not misinterpreting the text. Because that's kind of the goal. We're all trying to interpret the text. We're all trying to understand the message that God has for us. We're just removed from the text by like 
more than 2,000 years. And, uh, well, about 2,000 years, a language, cultures, history of the church. So we're removed quite a bit. And so trying to get back, that's, why this, that's what this process does, is it helps get us back, hopefully, to, you know, why did Paul use that word? Because we don't have a word like that to describe it. But truthfully, we don't really have a great explanation for it anyway. So it kind of makes sense. So any thoughts, any other thoughts or questions or anything on this before we do a discussion? So now that we're mostly in different groups. Except for the one who made the big deal about it. Mostly in different groups. I see what y'all did there. Um, (laughs) The first question, at least to go along with what we just talked about, is um, how might these two verses be misused or misinterpreted? Because like I said, we broke it down, but they've been misused and misinterpreted quite often, historically. So how might they be misused or misinterpreted, and then how would you respond based on your understanding of these verses? And then after this, we're going to go back to verses 1 to 5 and work in the workbooks.